I'm Denise Bailey. And I'm Dr. Monica Parker. And you're listening to My Parents Are Now My Kids, a medical doctor's view and daughter's journey through memory loss and other dementias. As a doctor, I'll help you navigate through the often confusing, confounding, and frequently frustrating technical aspects of dementia. And as a daughter, I'll share with you some things I've experienced caring for and loving my parents who both struggled with these disorders. We want you to have hope and to see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And we'll tell you that sometimes that light is coming straight at you and you just have to get out of the way. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Monica. Hello, Denise. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. So, you know, you've been keeping busy during this pandemic, haven't you? I really have. I really have. That's good. That's good. Your your patients that you still see they need you. You are invaluable. Well, I talked to a few. Good. A few. Good. So today we would like to talk about clinical trials and their yes. importance. So could you explain to our listeners the purpose of clinical trials as it relates to Alzheimer's and dementia? Yes. Okay. One of the things that um, is very important for the treatment of any disease, really, is to get enough people to participate in what we call clinical trials. Now, what is a clinical trial? A clinical trial is a project, I'll say a research project that involves human beings, and you're testing something. You're testing something that is to be used for taking care of or evaluating some condition in human beings. So preclinical trials may be something that's taking place in, let's say, an animal, like we might be doing mouse trials to look at something. And, and something, we've developed something working with animals or insects or something, then it's like, okay, let's see if we can modify the research to accommodate humans. And so if we have a medication, let's just use a medication in general, and we think it's going to work well in human beings, we go to what we call clinical you know, like a phase one of a clinical trial. And in that phase one of a clinical trial, they'll kind of do a broad spectrum uh, recruitment of people, like 80 to 100 people to test this new thing that's come from the animal model to the human model, right? Right. And then if that those 80 to 100 people in that clinical trial haven't observed any ill effects, and it seems to certainly not have caused any harm, we move to phase two, which instead of being like 80 to 100 people is going to be maybe up to 300 people. And in that phase two, we determine what's the minimum effective dose, what's the most, what's the maximum dose. We call those dosing kinds of things. We're looking at, okay, if we're going to use this in a larger group of people, how much more of the medication do we need to, how much more of a dose is required to get the desired effect? What are the side effects? That kind of thing. That's a phase two clinical trial. 
A phase three trial is where we figured out what the optimal dose is because we had the clinical two trial data to figure out what the most effective safe dose is. Then we take that most effective safe dose, which we learned about in the second phase, and apply it to the third phase, which is a larger group of people where we've worked out all the kinks. We know what the right dosage is and what the more likely side effects are. And then we move to a larger group of people in the thousands to see how efficacious or how effective that medication is. So these medications that you are testing in these clinical trials are medications that obviously would be beneficial to people with Alzheimer's and dementia. As you always state, there is no cure, but you're always looking for one. So these trials may have medications that you try out um, on people to see if they benefit those that may have Alzheimer's or dementia. And as a layman here, you also hear sometimes about placebos. So in these trials, some people may get the medication and some may get a placebo, which is just really nothing in the medication, but just to to compare the result right. between, explain that to folks. So when we do what we call a randomized clinical trial, people in the clinical trial, some people will be getting the actual treatment and then some people will not be getting the actual treatment. And it's sort of like, well, which one am I getting? How do I know and why would you put me in a trial where I have a disease and I'm getting a placebo? Well, it depends upon what the trial is looking at and what you're testing. In clinical research, we're not going to hurt you. We're going to try to make things better for you. So there are some people in some of these randomized clinical trials who do get placebo or um, placebo is like the fake medicine. So if everybody's getting four tablets, four white tablets, Some of those four white tablets will be active medication and some of those four white people getting four white tablets will be getting sugar pills. That's what a placebo is. It's like, but how are you treating my disease? It's like, we're not treating your disease, okay, when you're getting the placebo. What are some key questions if a person attempts to join a clinical trial? What are some key questions that they need to ask? They obviously need to discuss it with their doctor. What should they, you know, weighing the pros and cons, what should they ask if they want to participate in a clinical trial? Like, um, is this dangerous for me? Is this something that will affect the treatments I'm already getting? Uh, that type yes. of thing. Okay. So if you are going to be in a clinical trial, okay, right now we're looking at vaccines, for example, that may be developed to treat the coronavirus, okay? So the questions that you would ask are, if I participate in the trial, what kinds of side effects or what might be some adverse or bad outcomes that I should be aware of? Right. Would this affect me? So in for the vaccine trial, for example, If we are giving you a live vaccine, it's like, if you give me this live vaccine, am I going to get the infection that we're trying to prevent? Okay, as an example, all right? Um, So you always wanna know if I participate in this trial, what are, what's the most likely negative outcome? 
And then the other question is, okay, what are, what are you going to do if I develop this negative symptom? So I didn't get involved in this study to get sick, but if I do get sick and I do have a bad um, event or something bad happens to me, if I have to go to the hospital, will you pay for that? Because if I hadn't been in the trial, I wouldn't have developed the symptom that caused me to have to go to the hospital. So if there's a negative outcome, you want to know what all the likely bad scenarios are. And if there is an outcome that requires that you get medical treatment outside of the research, how is that going to be managed? Is that going to be something that the research project covers? Or is that something my health insurance has to cover? And most importantly, when you're in these things, will you share the information with the doctor that's treating me? Right. Are, it's not the researcher. Like I'm an investigator. It would not be me that has a responsibility of giving the information to your doctor. It would be you as the participant. So any information that I would give you as a participant in the study would be something that you need to be sure your doctor is aware of because he won't know if you don't tell him or her. Right. That's true. So how much flexibility do patients have when they're participating in these? Are there restrictions sometimes that they can and cannot do? Um, well, everybody's study, every clinical trial has different um, eligibility requirements that allow you to get in the study. There's every study that is positioned has uh, things that will not allow you to participate. And so it depends upon the study. No study has universal risks, um, benefits, things like that. So if you're in a trial, for example, testing a different high blood pressure medicine, for example, okay, I'm going to try this new super drug to treat my high blood pressure, but I have all these other medicines that I was taking. Can I still take these other medicines or do I take the experimental medication? Well, before you start that trial, it's your job to ask the doctor, the investigator, okay, I have high blood pressure. If you take me off of these four medicines that I've been taking and you want me to take your research drug, am I supposed to take them together? So that's a question that you need to ask. So if we're testing a new medicine for high blood pressure, for example, the objective is not for you to have higher blood pressure. It's for you to have lower blood pressure with maybe fewer medicines. If after a time, let's just say we start this medicine this week, and then three weeks later, we see that your blood pressure, instead of coming down, is going up, we're going to stop that research medication and put you back on what you were on. So research is not going to proceed in a, in a way where you would be hurt. It's going to stop. We're going to readjust and fix things. Same token, if we find something in the course of pre-screening, like for example, for most of the research studies we do for Alzheimer's, we check blood, we check for genetics, yes. We may do an MRI of your brain. And um, if there's something that's found on that MRI that is abnormal and not usual, we're gonna make you aware of that and give you that information to take to your doctor for your doctor to evaluate. It is not the researcher's job to evaluate. It's like, okay, we're doing an MRI for Alzheimer's studies and he, you volunteered to be in the study. And oh, we did your MRI and on your MRI, we see a mass in your brain. 
Is it the researcher's job to fix that? No. The researcher is going to say, we have to stop your participation in this study because we find an abnormality that needs to be addressed. We're going to give you what you need to have to go to your doctor to get that addressed. Can you tell us of some success stories in clinical trials as it relates to Alzheimer's and dementia? Yes. There are some successful clinical trials. There is something called the IDEA study, which is a special study that was um, co-sponsored by the Center for Medicare Services and the National Institutes of Health, which used a special kind of um, radio tracer to look at people's brains while they're living to determine whether or not they had this protein called amyloid, which is what we see in Alzheimer's. And using this special scanner, this amyloid PET scan, we could determine and diagnose people with Alzheimer's who were living but may not have shown real signs and symptoms because they had amyloid deposition, which was consistent with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Now, how would that revolutionize the care of people with Alzheimer's? that one scan would be diagnostic. The problem with that particular scan now is that particular scan is like $6,000. So we haven't yet developed an inexpensive brain scan that can be widely used for the diagnosis and evaluation of Alzheimer's. Now, so what we are working on are blood biomarkers, which are going to be less expensive tests to look for Alzheimer's. So that's a diagnostic success. So there's a special PET scan that can be used to look at your brain that can diagnose Alzheimer's without, let's say, a lumbar puncture, neuropsych testing, and all of that. Okay? That's that would be awesome because we've learned in the past that really you can diagnose it once you've passed away, but this is something that can diagnose well, while you're still alive. That's wonderful. Right. This is one of the newer diagnostic tools. Okay? That's a success. But there's a new medication or interventional success that we have had in recent years. As of last year, um, in the summer of last year, there's a drug called aducanumab. It's a monoclonal antibody developed by the company called Biogen. And this is an interventional medication that in um, clinical trials didn't show immediate improvement in somebody's cognitive abilities by taking it. So because it didn't do what they initially set out to prove, which was like stop Alzheimer's, for example, and reverse or get people back to a cognitive functional level, they said the drug was not meeting its endpoint. But as they went a little further and kept looking at people who had been on this particular medication, they noted that these people were not getting any worse. So aducanumab, manufactured by Biogen, is now a drug we're looking at as, you know, we, we stopped the studies too soon. So we're going back and looking at this drug a little differently and recognizing that, well, Maybe it didn't do what we initially wanted it to do, but it is showing progress in treating people by making sure that people don't get any worse. 
And can I say this as a caregiver, that is a blessing in itself because we are happy for the small victories. It would be, right. it would be so helpful. We know that there's no cure, but if say, for example, my mother doesn't get any worse, that is awesome. So, um, I can speak for caregivers. We would love something like that just to maintain, just to maintain. Okay. That being said, that medication is still not widely commercially available, but we anticipate that it will be if it meets FDA approval for that purpose. So our listeners who live in the United States, take note of that and ask your clinician or physician if that's something that your loved one may uh, qualify to get, if it's available, if it gets, you know, approved. So I'd like to end on this quote and I want your comment. I found this quote on the Alzheimer's Association website. It says clinical characteristics of a disease may be different in one group when compared to another. It's very, very important that people of all genders and ethnicities participate. Do you know who that quote is from? Me. Correct. (laughs) (laughs) You are featured on the Alzheimer's Association website with that wonderful quote. And we will go out on this session for you to tell us why that's important that all genders and ethnicities participate in clinical trials. Okay, that's important. I I laugh because I'm like, Denise. (laughs) But um, that's important because different diseases will manifest differently in different populations. One medication may respond one way in men and a different way in women. It may operate or function a little differently in people who may be of Mediterranean descent versus European American versus African American. And that's all a genetic thing. So it's almost like the best way that I can describe it is think of blood donors and blood matches. Okay. You need different people to donate blood and to be in the organ pool because we have to get these genetics to match up. Right. Right. That's what I would say about Alzheimer's. You know, some of the features that we characteristically and historically have um, attributed to people with Alzheimer's doesn't necessarily work if you're not a Euro- um, an American of European descent. So there are going to be some people, and there are a lot of African Americans who have biomarkers that are consistent with Alzheimer's, but may not be exhibiting the same symptoms that we observe in their European-American counterparts. So that being said, it's like, okay, is it the same disease? Maybe, maybe not. But we don't really know what the differences are because there aren't enough of the African-Americans to participate to say this is yay or nay. Perfect. That is perfect. Uh, That's a wonderful way to end. I think you've given some excellent Um, information about clinical trials and the importance that people of all genders and ethnicities should participate because we will find out different things about different people that relates to all people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Monica, 
Thank you, Denise. Always a pleasure. Talk to you next time.